Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, back at it again with another episode of Listener Mail. We're going to answer your questions about the issues, what we're seeing on the campaign trail, and anything else you're curious about. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. So these are usually Monday mail, but this coming Monday morning, we're going to have a special episode about the second presidential debate in your feed. So look out for that. All right. We've already gotten some questions from you guys about Hurricane Matthew. If you're outside of the U.S. hearing us and don't know, this is a pretty big hurricane that is moving up the coast of Florida today. The storm has already killed hundreds of people in Haiti. In the U.S., millions have been urged to evacuate. Hundreds of thousands of people have lost power. So we are not here to speculate on political implications while lives are at risk. But this storm could affect the election. So we should talk about that. I mean, one of the big things that people are worrying about right now is voter registration. The voter registration deadlines uh, are coming up quick in South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. So one of the big debates is what to do about that. Now, Would South, they extend them? Right, well, South Carolina extended it a couple of days, a few days, for some methods of voter registration. Florida, however, has not. And Governor Rick Scott has come under fire for that from some corners, including the Clinton campaign. The people on that campaign were upset that he didn't want to uh, extend registration. He said, essentially, there's been enough time. And Florida is an early voting state. It's an absentee voting state. And we're still four weeks from the election. So fortunately, it seems like this storm may be losing some of its speed and impact, which is a great thing and good for Florida residents. And, you know, unless something changes, a month out from an election is still a pretty good amount of time to let a state recover and make sure that people get to the voting booth. But of course, you know, we don't know the full impact of the storm yet. This is a little bit different if you remember this happened, something similar happened in New Jersey in 2012. It wasn't, a, I don't believe it was a hurricane. It was Superstorm Sandy. It oh, was a yeah. different, yeah. it was, but it was still a, a weather event. And mm. there was an impact there because people are dealing with the immediate aftermath and real-time concerns of life and death and home destruction. And uh, hopefully we won't see a lot of that in Florida and we will have more time to recover and prepare for it ahead of election day. Yeah. Mm. So please, folks out there, Be safe. Do what the folks in charge tell you to do. Right. Okay. All right. We will begin with a question from Peggy about the debate. She writes, quote, hi, who decides who is in the audience at the debates? And do you think the audience changes the debate? I am particularly thinking of Trump and how he feeds off an audience. Love the podcast. Peggy. Thanks, Peggy. Well, the presidential debates are a little bit different than the primary debates. The primary debates, they have different roles. Let's focus on the presidential debates because that's what we're in now. These debates partner with universities and oftentimes the tickets into the room are controlled by the university and then the campaigns are given a certain allotted amount. They do tend to be much smaller audiences than the primary campaign debates were. Uh, And oftentimes the candidates, the campaigns are given a certain amount of tickets and then the university has a certain amount of tickets that they give to a certain designated group of people. So I did some digging and And um, Hofstra University had the first debate and they had a lottery to Mm -hmm. give out some tickets to students. But to get in the lottery as a student, you had to prove that you were registered to vote. Oh, that's interesting. Really interesting. So for this debate, which is a town hall, which means that Clinton and Trump will hear questions from folks in the audience, the audience was actually selected uh, by Gallup to be a cross section of Hmm. undecided voters. So this is a little bit different than when the candidates are just at the podium. Right. Yes. Thanks, Peggy. Keep listening. Our next debate question comes from Danielle in Buffalo. 
it's a good name, Danielle. It, it really is. <laughs> I, I, I like the sound of that. She writes, hey, NPR Politics crew, my family and I have been keeping up with this election and the debates pretty closely. And my dad made an observation during Tuesday's vice presidential debate. He noticed that Tim Kaine wore a red tie and Mike Pence wore a blue tie. I noticed that Hillary and Trump did something similar in their first debate. And this has happened in previous election debates as well. Is there a specific reason the candidates do this? Unspoken tradition or just a very consistent coincidence we are looking too much into? Thanks and keep up the good work. I noticed the same thing. Well, yeah, and it's happened. It is interesting that it's happened in the last two debates thus far, but it doesn't always happen. I looked back at, you know, photos from the it's, it's really fascinating. I looked at photos from the 2012 debates. You have some photos where you see Obama in a red tie and Mitt Romney in a blue tie, but in some you, you see the reverse. What it, what I find interesting is that looking back, I just scanned photos from a few years. It seems like red and blue always do show up. You don't see people show up in a purple tie yeah. or in, you know, a paisley orange thing. It always seems to be those two colors. And red and blue have come to associate with politics as well, right? We think right. of red as red states and blue yeah. as blue states. So part of what was funny about Tim Kaine and Mike Pence is Tim Kaine was in the red tie and Mike Pence was in the blue tie. And I saw some funny commentary saying, like, are they trying to send a message? Is is this Unity. Tim Kaine reaching out to <laughs> Republican voters and Mike Pence reaching out to Democrats? There is also, I mean, more simple explanations as well, I think, that uh, red and blue are t- colors that look very good on television. Yeah. And that when so much of this is about image and what you present, and obviously red, white, and blue are the colors of our country. So uh, if you remember a couple years ago, President Obama came out to do a press event and he wore a tan suit. Yes. Oh, yes. I very much remember. And, and the nation recoiled. As I, I did. I sure did. Yeah. So I think there's also a part of it that we as watchers have an impression in our mind of what president should look like. And red and blue tie seems like the, the uniform. Sam, yeah. you like to wear chambray. I do. Chambray shirts and black jeans. Presidents <laughs> like to wear red and blue ties. Yeah. I think we could also know, too. I mean, the rules are a little bit different now because we have a female nominee who mm-hmm. doesn't wear ties. Yes. And if you think of uh, Hillary Clinton at the Democratic convention and she came out in a white suit. That was a nod to suffragettes. Yes, and that was a nod to the suffragette movement. And also white is another color of sort of angelic and yeah. it looks really good on television. Which people good. don't always think white is a good TV mm-hmm. color, but, but it, it pops. It, it yeah. pops. And if you watch just regular cable news, you'll see a lot of particularly women wear white on television. All right. One more debate question from Jeff in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He asks, quote, what is the value in journalists interviewing the campaign managers, surrogates or anyone else in the spin room following a debate? The answers are always that their candidates won the debate and then a list of campaign talking points. Thank you, Jeff. You did a story on this. I did a story on this. So my first debate that I ever went to in Simi Valley, California last year, a GOP debate, I did a story all about the spin room. And I went and talked to folks on both sides in the spin room. And Chris Matthews probably said it best. He said, it's absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in an age of social media where the spin happens in real time online. Mm -hmm. I don't actually see the point anymore. Yeah, and I would say um, prior to working in radio, I worked in newspapers, and we and in print deadlines, you always kind of skip the spin room because you don't have time for yes. it. So the spin room uh, largely fuels a lot of television needs. That mm-hmm. there is still sort of the post-show debate, yeah. and that a lot of that you need fresh interviews, you need fresh commentary. So it's more about I think the spin room in the modern day spin room is more about television than anything else. Right, and it, it seems like it, it's also a way that you know reporters, especially like Susan was saying, cable TV reporters sort of get a jump on the next chapter. Like, okay, we saw this debate. 
yeah, people are talking about the winners and losers, but let's hear immediately, how are the campaigns going to spin this? How are they going to try to create their own narratives? Yeah. And that, you know, can have a little bit of value, I would say. And it helps reporters on deadline get quotes to fill up their piece. Well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There's that. And if you're working on a story that isn't about the debate, the spin room is a great place because it's got all these people you can interview in and one very mm-hmm. small room. Yes. So yeah. it's helpful, yeah. if not necessarily only for debate reaction, but like some side story you might be working yeah. on. Yeah. Also, in this campaign season, we've seen Trump go into the spin yeah. room frequently. That's yeah. a new development. Yes, very yeah. new development. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Next up is another written question from Pamela in St. Clair, Michigan. Michigan in the house today. It's two Michigan questions in a row. Hmm. I'll take it. They're very engaged. Yeah. Pamela writes, quote, I am a wife of an Iraqi freedom veteran. My husband was deployed while we were dating, and he was active duty Air Force. He is now serving in the Air National Guard and holds a full-time position at the base, uniformed civilian position. We both have been closely following this election. It seems as though Donald Trump's comment this past weekend about individuals who suffer from PTSD may have been taken out of context. My question is, what do you think Trump meant when he said a lot of people can't handle it? Thanks for taking the time to read this. I love your podcast. Thanks for the question, Pamela. We have some tape of what she's talking about, Trump's remarks to an audience of veterans in Virginia. When you become president, will you support and fund a more more holistic approach to solve the problems and issues of veteran suicide, PTSD, TBI, and other related military mental and behavioral health issues? And will you take steps to restore the historic role of our chaplains and the importance of spiritual fitness and spiritual resiliency programs. Yes, I would. Look, we need that so badly. And when you when you talk about the mental health problems, when people come back from war and combat and they see things that uh, maybe a lot of the folks in this room have seen many times over and you're strong and you can handle it, but a lot of people can't handle it. And they see horror stories, they see events that you couldn't see in a movie, nobody would believe it. Now, we need a mental health um, help and medical, and it's one of the things that I think is least addressed. And well, I mean, the, the thing that, that people got stuck on is that in this comment, I mean, Trump often is, when it comes to particularly sensitive topics, Trump is an inarticulate communicator. He com- sort of comes in with a blunt force and not a scalpel, which in a lot, on, for a lot of issues works well for him because it gets the message across. But yes. when you're talking about an issue like veteran suicide, to speak in blunter terms can be interpreted in a in a very sensitive way. And in this, when he said a lot of people can't handle it, people really honed in on that part of his response. But the broader context of his remarks was in support of veterans and in support of getting them mental health care that they need and in support of revamping veterans' health care system. But it's politicians' jobs to make their messages more articulate. Yes. And when they gaff like this or when they speak like this, then that is what gets focused on. So the guy who asked the question uh, actually talked to the Trump campaign and they released this quote from him. Uh, It reads... I think it's sickening that anyone would twist Mr. Trump's comments to me in order to pursue a political agenda. I took his comments to be thoughtful and understanding of the struggles many veterans have, and I believe he is committed to helping them. I mean, he has been a candidate this whole campaign season who has spoken about how much he values veterans Mm -hmm. and the armed services and how he wants to support them. And Trump has a lot of support among the veteran community. Yes. This whole thing sort of brings up this whole idea of soundbite politics that pops up. Yeah. As a candidate these days, much more so than you used to, aside from bringing up the right ideas, you have to word them exactly right, sometimes to an almost lawyerly degree, because you run the risk of just four seconds of your 30-second 
uh, speech or your 30 second statement being taken out of context. And so this is, I think, something that uh, Donald Trump may have learned from this, which is you have to really, really nail your words down. Also to point out, John McCain, who was a veteran himself, uh, he defended Trump in these comments. He said what he is saying is that some people, for whatever reason, and we really don't understand why, suffer from PTSD and others don't. Uh, That's what McCain told the Arizona Daily Star's editorial board. Right, which is also important because, you know, there was that really big... uh kerfuffle made last year, of course, when Donald Trump said that, you know, he likes people who weren't captured. He he was saying this about John McCain. And that, you know, very much got many veterans upset. Uh, Thanks for your question, Pamela. And thank you for your family service. All right. Moving on, we have a recorded question from Jesse in our own backyard, Washington, D.C. Let's hear it. Hi, NPR Politics Podcast. My name is Jesse. I'm from Washington, D.C. I had a question about D.C. statehood. So I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. My friends and I grew up knowing that we had no representation in our federal government. We do have a non-voting member of Congress, and we do have electoral votes, but no say in how policies and laws are made. So my question is, do you think if either candidate is elected, they will take any action to further represent D.C. in our federal government? Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. So lots of folks might not know that Washington, D.C. is actually not a state. Uh, We don't have... uh folks in Congress that can actually vote. We, As our what else is our say, taxation without representation. Well, yeah. D.C., district, the District of Columbia joins like Guam and American Samoa and the Virgin Islands is we have representatives in Congress. But they don't vote, right? But they don't have votes on the floor. Okay. But they can vote in committee and they uh-huh. can vote for party organizing purposes. But when it comes to legislative votes on the floor of the House, they don't have a vote. Um, so Hillary Clinton is a champion of D.C. statehood. However, I don't know how big of a priority this is for the next president exactly. Well, Obama has come out in favor of D.C. statehood, but once he said it a few times, he really didn't have any action on it. And to make D.C. a state, it has to go through Congress. That seems unlikely. There's a referendum on the ballot in D.C. actually for this November 8th on D.C. statehood, but it's a local referendum and it's not binding. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, from about 2004 to 2010, there was a real significant push in Congress to try and make this happen. And it kind of fizzled around 2010. And there's been almost no action since then. Part of that is because this is a polarized issue. It's really Democrats that just push for statehood now because the District of Columbia is such a secure Democratic stronghold that Republicans aren't inclined to like build into the baseline a strong Democratic vote, particularly if this were to involve allowing for a representation in the Senate. Two Democratic votes in the Senate is, is a very powerful right. block. So there's yeah. not a lot of interest there. Wow. I don't know if Trump has spoken about R- D.C. statehood. Right. The the nearest thing that I saw was last March. He told the Washington Post he didn't have a position yeah. on this. Uh, and since then, he really hasn't seemed to have talked about it. Yeah. 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 But Hillary Clinton has come out very firmly in favor of uh, D.C. statehood. Question six comes to us from Kat, who is formerly of San Francisco and currently lives here in D.C. Hi, Kat. She writes, quote, I want to hear more about the top two primary system in California. Has it actually been shown to be a solution to the partisan divide? The way it works is that when you're on a ballot, everyone, all the candidates are on the same ballot. And whoever the two candidates are that get the most votes are the candidates that move on even if you're candidates from the same political party. Yes. And that's why we've seen Kamala Harris and And Lourdes Sanchez Sanchez in California California. are two Democrats facing off for the Senate seat this November. So California isn't the only state that has this. Washington and Louisiana also have it. Nebraska has it for some statewide offices. Now, one of the benefits of this, uh, the idea of this, is that it should theoretically lead to more moderate candidates because, you know, if you have 
two Democrats running for the same race uh, in the general, then they have to theoretically try to appeal to the Republicans who are still out there, even though those Republicans don't have someone on the ballot. Now, as far as California thus far, there have been some studies on this. You know, in the primary, Democrats tend to vote for Democrats, Republicans tend to vote for Republicans, people don't cross party lines. And then in the general, a lot of people abstain if their party is not on the ballot. So if I'm a Democrat and there are two Republicans on the ballot, I'm just going to say, nope, not going to touch that race. So it may not be having the big effect that people wanted it to have. Also, listeners, Google Loretta Sanchez dab. (laughs) You won't regret it. Oh, my God. All right, moving on. Question seven comes to us from Skylar in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. Quick question I don't feel like bothering Google for. Why are the general elections held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November? Keep up the good work. NPR is the free news source that I actually pay for. You guys are a big reason why I donate. Money, please. Thanks, yeah. Election dates came about in 1845. There was sort of a mishmash of election dates uh, around then. They were all... Within roughly the, you know, somewhere in November where most of them were. Elections could also take place over a broader period of time. It wasn't a single day. States were allowed to set up Uh. their own election days. Yeah. So it was sort of a messy system. All the states had different dates. Then in 1845, Congress decided to set a date. So what they decided was, okay, election day can't be on a Sunday because people, we we don't want people taking their buggies out on the Sabbath. And so it can't be on a Monday because people may need to drive on a Sunday. Can't be on Wednesday because you got a lot of farmers and Wednesday is market day. So Tuesday, they decided, all right, let's just have it on Tuesday. And they had it in November also because of farming, because... It's like the end of the harvest. Right. Spring, summer, fall, farmers are busy. Winter, there are blizzards. So let's do it in late fall. Next question comes to us from Meta from Los Angeles. Hi. She writes, quote, I work on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Thanks for the shout out, Sam. Of course. I love that show. It's a good show. Uh, She says, my question is music related. How do the campaigns choose their theme songs? How come the campaigns can't always anticipate negative blowback from an artist when using their song? Like when Steven Tyler objected to Donald Trump using Dream On during his campaign stop. Thanks. Keep up the great work. This happens every election. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like this year Adele told Trump to stop using her music. Mm -hmm. Several artists have done the same. My constant question is why don't these campaigns ask first? Seems like they never do. Well, it's always a more of a problem for Republicans because all of these artists are Democrats, <laughs> and right? they don't yeah. and they don't like their music being used to boost a candidate that they don't support. I mean, yeah. it is always more of a problem for the Republican candidate than the Democratic candidate. And I don't that's think happened we, for a long, a long time. time. Like back in eighty four, I believe it was Bruce Springsteen yep. said to Ronald Reagan. Don't use Born in the USA. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's happened very, very often since. So there was a campaign song featured very prominently in Bill Clinton's campaign for president, Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. And they, they, they were cool with that. They performed it at the convention one mm-hmm. year, I think. Mm-hmm. So every now and then there is a symbiosis. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, for this uh, listener's first question, how do campaigns choose their theme songs? In that case, you can kind of see how they chose that theme song. I mean, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. It's about the future. Oh, yeah. It appeals to baby boomers. Hillary Clinton chose fight song this year Ugh, that ugh, I can't I know uh, it, it appeals it appeals to youngsters you know it's it's does kinda, it well it's it, one might reasonably assume one on the Clinton campaign for example might reasonably assume it would appeal yes. to younger people especially you know it sounds kind of girl power ish yes, true so to speak the funny one of the funniest things to me about this election is that Donald Trump has picked you can't always get what you want <laughs> that's what he want that was at the end of the convention that's like his walk yes. on music also, it is hilarious also, I think it's fitting though I know, and but to play that at the convention to the party, it was yeah. like the message mm-hmm. on that. It's just, it's yeah. just too good. Um, 
Question 10 comes to us from Chris, who has a question about Kiefer Sutherland. Sort of. Awesome. He asks, quote, I don't know if you guys have had the chance to watch the new ABC Kiefer Sutherland series, Designated Survivor, but the basic premise is that the president, the entire cabinet, and all of Congress gets killed in what appears to be a terrorist attack. Kiefer Sutherland plays the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, who was made the Designated Survivor, in case everyone in the line of succession cannot serve. It made me wonder how far down the line of succession for the presidency actually goes, and if this designated survivor thing is something we actually have or was just completely made up for TV. Thanks and love the podcast. Thanks, Chris. So it's a real thing. There is a list of succession, mm-hmm. which I Googled and I could read off, but I don't have to. Okay. Um, but I also think it's a true thing that they always have at least one person not go to the president's State of the Union just in case yeah. something bad happens. Off-site in an undisclosed location. Yeah. Yeah. Totally true. All right, here it goes. Vice President, Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem of the Senate, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Attorney General. Then the following secretaries in this order. Interior, Agriculture, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Transportation, Energy, Education, Veterans Affairs, and last but not least, Secretary of Homeland Security. They are last because that department came very late. And my fun fact in this is that after 9-11, Congress passed laws on the continuity of Congress and that it is little known, but the Speaker of the House also designates a list of Speaker pro tempores who could serve as Speaker if the House could not convene itself or if something were to happen to the Speaker. And that person also stays outside of the State of the Union for address for the person that would reconstitute the Congress. And then the designated survivor for the White House would reconstitute the White House. Where do they go? I would like go to like Red Lobster or something. Probably. They're probably at home. All right. That is all the mail for now. Reminders, send us your questions or even record them and send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. And for the debate on Sunday night, once again, we'll have an episode in your feed the morning after. During the debate, you can catch live coverage on your local public radio station and check out our live fact check as the debate is happening in real time at NPR.org. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.